Warrior Festival podcast, a celebration of our troops, veterans, and American way of life. I'm your host, Dan Clore. Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to our very special American Warrior Festival podcast, 4th of July special. The 4th of July, our nation's most patriotic holiday and America's birthday. The thought of this holiday conjures up memories of fireworks, parades, family barbecues with hot dogs, hamburgers, apple pie, and baseball. On this day, 244 years ago, we stuck it to King George III and the rest of Britain. We were united, free, and independent. Good times. It's no mystery that this year is different for all of us. Large fireworks displays and parades are being canceled to prevent mass gatherings. It sucks, I know. We all can't wait to get back to some normalcy. I'm not the type of guy to dwell on the negative, so let's talk about something cool. Before we get into some fun facts, I did read that Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest will air on ESPN, so we have that going for us. Watch the Babe Ruth of hot dog eating contest, Joey Chestnut, go for a world record 75 hot dogs. Damn, man, where, where does that guy fit all those hot dogs? Do you ever wonder that? Now, for some fun 4th of July facts. Fact number one, the White House held its first 4th of July party in 1801. They're rocking at the White House. Number two, Benjamin Franklin proposed the turkey as the national bird, but was overruled by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who recommended the bald eagle. I personally think that was a good choice. Number three, in 1776, there were 2.5 million people living in the new nation. Today, the population of the USA is 328 million people. That's some growth there. Number four, barbecue is also big on Independence Day. Approximately 150 million hot dogs, half of them eaten by Joey Chestnut, and 700 million pounds of chicken are consumed on this day. Damn, that's staggering. Number five. Every 4th of July, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia is tapped, not actually rung, but tapped 13 times in honor of the original 13 colonies. I'll tell you what else happened on the 4th of July. The two greatest sports owners in history were born on this day. Al Davis of the Raiders was born on July 4th, 1929, and George Steinbrenner of the Yankees was born on July 4th, 1930. Two fiery leaders who did things their own way. Both men had a complete respect and passion for all things military. Davis served and coached in the U.S. Army, and Steinbrenner served in the U.S. Air Force. They were voracious readers of tactical military and leadership books and ran their teams like military organizations. Mr. Davis believed in, above all, intimidation, instilling fear into the opponent. The quarterback must go down, and he must go down hard. With the lethal big vertical strike, the aggressive bump-and-run defense, and the desire to win at all costs, the Raiders dominated and became one of the most successful franchises in all of sports. Al didn't view a football contest as a game. He viewed it as a battle, a war. Mr. Steinbrenner believed in a complete and total dedication to winning. He was also big on discipline. Upon purchasing the team in 1973, he required every Yankee player to adhere to strict grooming standards much like the military. George wanted to win every single day, and he treated a 162-game baseball schedule much like a 16-game football schedule. Every day was a battle for dominance, and the Yankees needed to be the top dog. The Yankees win with power. 
with Ruth, Gehrig, DiMaggio, Mantle, Jackson, Mattingly, Winfield, Judge, and countless others, the Yankees have always been big on the long ball. Here are a couple iconic Yankee moments that happened on the 4th of July. Number 1. July 4th, 1939, before 61,808 fans at Yankee Stadium, the great Lou Gehrig said goodbye. Gehrig, while deathly ill, with ALS, delivered one of the most memorable farewell speeches in sports history by saying, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. It's really unbelievable. Number 2. July 4th, 1983. Dave Rigetti fired a no-hitter at Yankee Stadium against the Boston Red Sox. We all know George was happy on his birthday that year. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break while you listen to God Bless America, and we'll be back shortly with Staff Sergeant Joseph Coburn of the New York National Guard to discuss the Revolutionary War and Independence Day. The American Warrior Festival podcast brought to you by the Red Osier Landmark Restaurant. Western New York's premier dining experience, known for its amazing prime rib and dedication to the veteran community. Visit them online at theredosier.com. The American Warrior Festival podcast brought to you by Oliver's Candies, the creator of the American Warrior Festival candy bar. Oliver's Candies is proud to offer you the largest selection of award-winning chocolates made in Western New York. Visit them online at oliverscandies.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest for our special Independence Day episode today. Please welcome... Staff Sergeant Joe Coburn from the New York Army National Guard. Joe has his B.A. in U.S. History, and he's going to spend some time with us today talking about uh, U.S. History with a focus on Independence Day. Hey, Joe, how's it going, man? Thanks for coming on. 
Great, Dan. Thanks for having me. I think it's the first time I've been called a special guest, so I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> we appreciate you guys coming on here, and you're very special to us, and uh, our listeners agree. And if they don't, we'll just have to stomp a butthole <laughs> in their ass, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, Joe, why don't you uh, start out by telling us a little bit about your uh, your military career? Absolutely. So I, uh, I was born and raised in a town of Dansville, which is in western New York. At 17 years old, I joined the Marine Corps. I spent my first uh, four years of my military career in the active duty Marine Corps. I did one deployment to Afghanistan. I was pretty much gone for all of 2013 over to Afghanistan. In uh, 2014, I got out, moved back home, uh, missed missed the military almost immediately. But I kind of wanted to stay in my community and serve my community at that point. So I joined the New York National, the New York Army National Guard. I spent a year and a half there as a infantryman, just normal doing the, like you see on the ads, the one weekend a month and two weeks in the summertime. I was working on college at the time. I was uh, just starting my degree. And then at that point, about a year and a half in, like I said, I came upon an opening position for a recruiter. So I applied, went to a board interview, and then that's when I became in 2000, in the end of 2017 is when I became a recruiter for the New York Army National Guard. I've been doing that ever since. So. Any of you listening or in uh, not military already, if you're veterans that want to get back in in New York, let me know. I love it, man. I love it. The recruiters, man. You guys are it's persistent and always on it, and that's what I love about what you guys do, man. You got <laughs> you got to stay on it. Get those get those ranks healthy, right? Absolutely. Keep those numbers that's up. Our, that's our that's our main concern uh, is making sure that people stay in. We want to keep people happy once they're in and get new blood in. Well, you know what, man, now that you touch on that, that's a thing, too, that we really consider American Warrior Festival to be an outlet where we reach the youth through, um, you know, video gaming, music, sports, uh, all the different events that we do, the workouts and, and the, the boot camp stuff. And we want it. The firing range days. I can't forget about that. We want to get the youth and people of all ages involved with what we're doing here at American Warrior to instill, you know, a sense of, um, you know, American pride and, and pride in our country, pride in serving and wearing the uniform. And so I really see a great relationship being built with American Warrior and our nation's recruiters. I think we can work hand in hand in that sense. I mean, um, tell the people, like you guys have set up a, a booth a few times at our events, and we love having you guys there. Yeah, absolutely. I did the first time I actually met Dan was we were at the American Warrior Festival in Leroy and uh, the heavy metal concert he did there. And I, I don't know how to get more uh, really American than that with all the vendors we had, American flags everywhere, just amazing rock music going, everything from you had some pretty, you know, big name metal bands to some garage bands that were kind of trying to break free. And just being there, I was there as a recruiter and it was, I had such a good time that I think I forgot to recruit some of the times because I just loved walking around and talking to everybody. It was, it was really just an awesome event, but yeah, I, I agree. So the couple events that we have worked together, I, uh, I, I love it. And we get, and that's, and we go to some events as recruiters where I don't want to say we're not welcome, but it's, uh, you can tell that there's not a huge population, you know, huge part of the people there that want to talk to us that are interested you go to an american warrior festival and everybody there wants to talk to you just as you're just as you're in in uniform you know or there's a lot of veterans there that all of us that are vets just gravitate to each other i feel like especially when you get out and i i just think that all of us are always constantly looking to build those relationships that are so special about being in the military 
that's a great point. That's definitely a great point. And, and when you guys come to our events, this is our home, military veterans. So we bring the community and the civilians in to our home and let them see what we do. So when you say, you know, you feel comfortable being a part of what we do, because we want you guys to feel like you're just coming into your house, you know, and you, you are there because you guys are the first step into creating our future with our, with our veteran and military community. You know, you guys are shaping the young lives, getting them inspired to go in and, and anything we can do to make your job uh, a little easier or just help in any way. We, we are excited to do it and are honored to do it. And, and that definitely shows Dan. And the other thing too, that I always like to hit on is uh, those, those veterans too, you know, I, the ones that if I understand a lot of veterans come out of the military with some injuries and stuff like that, but a lot of times they see guys that are 22, 23, 24. They got out of the four years in the military. You know, they are healthy. Everything's good, but they kind of, there's nothing wrong with this, but they kind of hang up, they're ready to hang up their boots. And then they feel like there's something missing. Well, the national guard is a perfect place for them. I, that's literally what happened to me. I thought at 23, like, yep, my military service is over. Like time to just, you know, hang out at the VFW and tell war stories the rest of my life. And then I, <laughs> you know, went uh, back into, I missed it. And I, I, you know, started looking at the New York national guard and I'm like, man, these guys do some really cool stuff that I never even knew about. And then I walked in there as a prior service Marine. And then I found out that this is, or this is a, I don't remember the actual numbers, but this is a verified statistic. There are more Marines right now in the national guard than there are currently serving in the Marine Corps. Well, well let me tell you what, brother, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, I talk about it. There's a, a short documentary about it. And I've, I've talked about it a few times out in public, but I screwed up the first part of my Marine Corps career. And part of my pathway back, I did a year in the Army Guard in California. And that was yeah. kind of my first step. Did I ever tell you that story? Did you hear about no, that? No, I've, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've never heard that story. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we can go into it deeper, uh, you know, off the air sometime. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but I, I <laughs> it, uh, so I joined up to take my first step to prove to the Marine Corps that I was ready to go back and fix things up. And I, so I joined the guard for one year and I was just amazed. First off, it was all Marines and Rangers. Yeah. It, like, it was, a, it was a grunt I, I, unit. It was high speed, man. Some of the hardest shit yep. I've ever done in the military was in that unit. I see the same thing. Like I said, I deployed to, to Afghanistan with the Marine Corps and the hardest thing I've done in my military so far was, and I came to guard with the stereotypical Marine but I, I, I love Marines, so this is not a bash well, right, whatsoever. Right, but absolutely. the stereotypical Marine mindset of, I'm already a Marine. Like, I'm just going to walk through this. Like, And then I went to this advanced infantry course that was 18 days long, and I got smoked like every single day. And it was like, I'm like, this is no joke. Like These dudes are for real. Like They really train. Like This is some high-speed shit. And then... It was the same. It was the same thing when I, I got to the unit, and then all of a sudden I'm like, we had. There's two guys from the unit that I was in in Geneseo who have gone to selection. One of them made it through selection is now a Green Beret, and he got wow. to start in the New York National Guard. So yeah. that's like a bit. That, like that's something I always try to tell people about is it, it's not. Don't listen to the guy on the street that tells you who's never been in the military that tells you about the military because his brother watched a YouTube video. Like, at least come talk to me so I can tell people these things, you know? Right. Oh, I tell, you know, I had a, a just a, I mean, I knew what was up before I went in with that guard unit, but after yeah. I left, I had just so much more respect and everyone, uh, not everyone, but people kind of have the old mindset of a bunch of dudes sitting around with coffee and donuts. And I love coffee and donuts, but there's some <laughs> high speed things going on in, the, in those guard units, man. And, 
And uh, I tell people too, I think you just, you hit on it very well that for all those people serving that are like, man, you know, I really want to be, get around my home again. I really want to, I don't want to get all the way out, but I, I can't stay in active duty, but I don't want to be done. The guard is a perfect place for people to, uh, you know, become a part of and to continue on with their career. Absolutely. And that's, that's the main reason why I joined back up. You know, I wasn't expecting to be a full-timer. I, cause that's the other thing too, is that 10% of the national guard in any state is full-time guys, active soldiers. Um, that was, I didn't even know about that when I joined, it was just exactly what you're saying, Dan is I'm, I'm like, I got to get back in uniform. I can't because of my life situation at the time I couldn't commit fully, but I, I needed to do something. And then obviously, you know, you're less than two years later and I became a full-time guardsman as a recruiter. So it was, it was really, in my position as recruiter, I, I say it's the best of both worlds. I'm active. I'm on an active contract, active duty benefits. I'm recruiting. I was in my hometown today, like talking to local business owners. You know what I mean? So it's really awesome. Oh, it, it's, it is a cool thing. I remember when I was, uh, I think I was actually in the, the Rochester reserve unit in the Marines at the time, eighth tanks. I think it was in Chi Lai, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Ble- exit five off of 490. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and I got on one of those billets where I was able to get like a six month active duty job, uh, becoming a recruiter's assistant in Batavia. Yep. So I, I was 19 years old, just one year removed from graduating Leroy. So I just walked in and these are all my people, my buddies that I hung out with. So it was so effective for them to come up and say, well, Clore, how was it, man? You know, tell us about it. And they would kind of let their guard down a bit. So having people, recruiting in their um the areas where they're from is definitely a positive and and powerful thing so uh, recruiting it's a great job because you're really putting the guard in the the marine corps you're one of the representatives you're you're the tip of the spear putting it out there to the community and reaching them at the front level yeah it's 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 been really good to me so far I, i really have enjoyed my time so far in recruiting awesome so so great why don't we uh First off, I'm so excited to be doing an Independence Day special. This is going to air right on the 4th of July here. So why don't we get started and talk about the, uh, you know, our nation's most patriotic holiday? Absolutely. I was so, I was trying not to show how excited I was when you you said that you'd like to have me on for this because uh, this is kind of stuff that I talk to anybody that'll listen. If there's a homeless guy that wants to hear about the birth of our nation, I'll sit and talk to him. Uh, and I think I, <laughs> nice. I beat my family up about it. And I think my wife's probably borderline sick of hearing about it. Cause that's, that's all we watch <laughs> in our houses, uh, you know, documentaries. And I'm always reading books about, you know, I, I'm a big student of history in general. Like I, like you said, I have my, my BA in us history, but I really specialized in pretty much the landing in Jamestown and Plymouth colony. So six, early 1600s up to the revolutionary war. Cause I, I, I think that. I, we were talking about it earlier that really that is the, to me, it, when you l- really look into it and what I want to hit on here is how improbable it really was that we were going to succeed. Like by no means in any statistics, anybody that knew, knew anything about military tactics at the time, anyone that knew anything about political science, by, by all accounts, we should not be where we're at today. We should not have succeeded. We should not have lasted as a nation as long as we have. So to me, that's just like amazing. And, and the more I learn about it, and the, so you, you never stop learning. I don't care what profession you're going to, you can always learn. And um, the more I learn about it, I learn about more about every every day. And it just keeps driving home to me how 
literally if the are the people that we call our founding fathers which a lot of them i wanted to, i would like to get into and talk about today um because i think some of them don't get as much credit as they deserve but if, if those it's almost i'm not a huge i don't push religion i'm not a huge religious guy but something some other entity i had to have pulled these group of guys together because i really believe it took every single one of them working together to make the nation what it became and what it is today oh this is great i'm just getting more excited about it as we go <laughs> so uh so, yeah go ahead take it away brother so uh as we all know uh the declaration of independence was signed july 4th in 1776 however what a lot of people get i don't even want to say confused but when you're learning about this in a high school history class setting when you're learning about this and you know a lower level college setting you think that that's it at that point we turn against britain and that's when we became our own nation but it was not it's not it was near that simple there you know the other thing that we don't think about that i think it's lost on a lot of people is that the war was going on for over a year before the declaration of independence was signed so we were already fighting against britain without even an end in sight because as we all know well a lot of people know is that really when we started to push away from great britain was right after the french and indian war which a lot of the generals that fought on for the colonial army, the continental army, excuse me, um, coming in were actually also in the French Indian War wearing British red uniforms. And after after that war, you know, they came out with the Sugar Acts, the Stamp Acts, the uh, you know the Townshed Acts. There's and all that stuff. And all that was was you know as we all know the taxes. You know that's where the phrase no taxation no representation you know comes out because. They were just taxing everything that the colonists used, uh, everything from tea to playing cards to stamps to all that kind of stuff. And that was creating civil unrest, not not unlike what we're seeing today, obviously, with different motives behind it. But it was right. the same kind of things were going on. A lot of that came to came to a head, you know, over these couple decades leading up to it with, uh, you know, the Boston Massacre of March 5th, 1770. So in that, you know, it's. You know, historians go back and forth on whether or not we should even be calling the Boston Massacre a massacre because the people that, you know, the, the individuals, the citizens that got shot by the British troops, they were coming at the British troops with weapons, not not really guns, but, you know, weapons. And only a select few of them, not very many, were injured or wounded. So that is why it got deemed a massacre was because of, you know, patriotic newspapers at the time printing out Boston Massacre because that sounds sounds like it's going to get people moving and get people going. Another big thing that came to the head, as we all know, is, is the famous Boston Tea Party. Now, there's a lot of people that were part of the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party that we don't even realize. A lot of these, throughout these two decades leading up, a lot of the same people you see come in and out. So, for instance, one of the biggest things that I find to be just astonishing is as we all know john adams he was the second president of the united states he's a signer of the declaration of independence he's definitely 100 percent one of the most important founding fathers he actually he was a warrior in boston he represented the british troops that shot at the citizens during the boston massacre wow and go ahead oh no that's that's i didn't know that yeah so he represented the troops and the reason he did that, even though he was 100% against them, he was already an established patriot at the time. He was already of the camp of breaking away from England and that we need to govern ourselves. But he thought that no warrior would give them a fair, would make sure they had a fair trial in the entire, you know, in the entire colony at the time. So even though that he was 100% against them, 
he chose to represent them because he felt so true to the law and to justice that he was like, I'm going to make sure, even though I want to see these guys fry, I'm going to make sure they get a fair shake. They, they deserve that. Whether whatever they did is irrelevant, everybody deserves a fair shake. So wow. I, I just always thought that was amazing. That, that is amazing. Yeah, because it's just, you know, holding up as a lawyer, really getting right into his trade and saying we have to do things the right way and, and really uh, be truthful with, with the process, right? I mean, setting the process into action, into action our court system. And yeah, and, that's, and you see a lot of those, a lot of those views come into play because John Adams also, so Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, but John Adams was the head of the committee that kind of revised it. So uh, another, you know, point that a lot of people don't realize is that Thomas Jefferson was not given credit for writing the Declaration of Independence until the 1790s. Up to that point, it was just, yeah, the Continental Congress, we came together and we drafted this. When really what happened was throughout the whole month of June of 1776, Thomas Jefferson was writing and drafting the Declaration of Independence. And then it was actually had 86 revisions that were made by John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. So, I mean, it was heavily revised, but they did keep a lot of the points that Thomas Jefferson wanted to get out. And that's the other thing, too, is that Jefferson, you know, we all know he's the third president. He's pretty famous as founding fathers go, but he had more to do with it than almost anybody else. He felt slighted when he wasn't offered the presidency after, you know, when George Washington was offered the presidency. He actually retired from politics because of it. He didn't outwardly say anything bad about George Washington, but he, he felt very slighted because the ideals that go into the Declaration of Independence, you know, though we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, is that famous line. That's a line that ended up in, that was already in some of his pamphlets that he had. So this is a guy that already had these views and was already sharing these views long before uh, independence from Great Britain was even was even a thing or even thought of. Now, now Joe, because you said Jefferson wanted the position of presidency and or U.S. president and Washington kind of really had to be not dragged into it. Right. But he he kind of knew that maybe he was the best bet to keep the, the you know, brand new fibers of the nation together. I mean, because he really wanted to go back to his farm, didn't he? Absolutely. 100%. That is 100% correct. Actually, so there is another, I'm going to paraphrase this quote, but there is when he, when after we, we got independence after, you know, the Treaty of Paris and we won the Revolutionary War, that's exactly what he wanted to do. He was very big into architecture and farming. He considered himself almost like a scientist farmer to where he was always trying new things and trying to grow new things in Virginia, mainly tobacco. And then he retired to his farm Upon learning that George Washington just defeated his army and went back to his farm, King George actually said that if he actually does that, he will be the greatest man to ever live. Now, yeah, it's a paraphrased yeah. quote, but that's very close, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, to what to what the actual quote is. But yeah, you're, you're 100% correct, because that's the other misconception, too, is, like, George Washington didn't just get appointed, well, he got elected president right after. There was a big period there, because the Bill of Rights wasn't even drafted until 1789 and that's when George Washington became president was in 1789 he wasn't even thought of as president that wasn't even a thought of position at that point because we broke away from England and it was almost this like okay now what you know, no one knew <laughs> right the- yeah here here we go we, we have our our freedom <laughs> and we're our own, you know our own nation but how do we get what's our blueprint to live here now exactly and that's why so many people call it an experiment is that's because we didn't know they the founding fathers didn't know what they wanted they just knew they what they didn't want if that made sense so they knew they 
didn't want a monarchy. They didn't want anything like what they just broke away from. And that was, that's really when we see the checks and balances come into play because they didn't, they, they knew we needed a president. At first, there's a lot of people that were opposed to even having the position of president of, you know, having one man take that much power. But they were like, what do we do here? We need somebody to be a figurehead because there's just going to always be constant bickering and arguing when you have a group of people. But at the same time, we need to check this guy because we, we can't have a monarchy. That's what we just broke away from. Right. And, and I think wasn't one of the proposed names for president, like your excellency or instead of Mr. President. So I that guess is, it, yeah. So that is one of the hits. I, I guess you call it a hit on George Washington he, is that that's what he wanted to kind of be referred to as. And there's people that that hit on him. There's people that beat him up in pamphlets after, you know, there's some of his own cabinet cabinet members were releasing pamphlets and that so the pamphlets that he printed up that was like the facebook of the time like that's what would happen is if you wanted to trash somebody you went in you got somebody to print your ideas in a pamphlet and it went into circulation so that would be the equivalent of us beating up the president right now on facebook or twitter so they went in and they criticized him for that but if we're being fair he he didn't know what else to do like what else, what is your blueprint like you said for being a president like what are you supposed to be called? How are you supposed to act? You know, and there's also accounts where he used to walk around outside the Capitol, which was not in D.C. at the time, just so that way people could see him out on the street because he wanted people to see him with some air of normalcy. He didn't want to be, you know, held at a higher standard or anything like that. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, because didn't he uh, coin that famous quote like I, I did in uh we didn't help overthrow a king for for him to become one or me to become one, wasn't yes. that? Yep, a premise. Yeah, yep, that is definitely a premise that he he. And that's what's also so that speaks so largely to the character of George Washington is that he he really had America kind of. I don't I don't even know how to describe. Like he had a grip on him. Like the people of America were like, this is the guy that just beat the British army, the toughest military on the planet. So really, he could have done whatever he wanted. You know, like if he wanted to be crowned a king, I I really feel like he probably could have. You know, and they that was one of the worries is that he had such military support that they were like, if this guy wanted to, he could have just re-raised the army under his own name, and and there could be a military coup right there, that, um, that which is, is so not true. is not anything that he ever wanted or or that anyone could show he ever thought of. It's just that that was what they were so worried about with him is that this guy has so much power. And he was also, there were some hits on him during the Whiskey Rebellion. So there's the other thing too, is that one of the big reasons that we broke away from Great Britain was the taxes. And they were, they didn't believe in the taxes and all this other stuff. Well, we get this new nation. They draft up, you know, the Bill of Rights, the Articles of Confederation. That was kind of the placeholder before the Bill of Rights. That gets thrown out. Now, okay, how do we raise money? You know, as much as we all hate taxes, we have to pay to have a government in some way, shape, or form. So to raise money, they started, Congress started a tax on whiskey or on liquor. Well, during this, that's what started the Whiskey Rebellion, where there was uprisings, an actual another colonial militia-type army was raised, and General Washington sent troops to go. They didn't have to actually engage, but he raised an army again to send troops down there to stop the rebellion. And then he ended up taking, you know, action against the individuals that started it. But then there was another hit on him of like, oh, is this what's going to happen now? Like, that's what we didn't like about Britain was they sent an occupying force over here. Well, now we have an occupying force anyway. Because there was a lot of, Thomas Jefferson being one of them, 
did not think that there should be a standing army in America, that an army should be raised if we're threatened from the outside, but they were against a standing army. Oh, interesting. Yep. And that's, so Thomas Jefferson is a weird character too, in that he, he wrote the declaration of independence. Like I said, he needed credit for that for a while. He did become Washington secretary of state when he was elected president. So the other weird thing about politics in that time is that you can't, you couldn't act like you wanted to be in politics. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, that was Washington's thing almost from the beginning, right? I, I've read a few books on him where they said maybe part of his genius was he maybe he all because he he was born like what middle class. I mean, wasn't he always looking to upgrade and yes. and kind of roll with the higher society? He married up, right? Like he yep. he became uh, what's that? What was his job when you're working? He was working with land, right? Surveyor? Yep. Wasn't he a surveyor? Yep, he was a surveyor, hundred percent. He was big into so when he married uh, Martha, he married into a very rich family, like you said, and their main money came from tobacco farming. So he inherited a tobacco farm overnight because she was a she was a widow. She was in her um, late twenties, I believe, couple kids, and she was a widow of a rich family. So, but to your earlier point, that you're absolutely correct, Dodd, that Washington was a very, I don't want to say he was a very um, driven individual. So one of the ways, even nowadays, definitely one of the ways in the colonies to upgrade your status was to have military success. So. When Washington was younger, he became a colonel, but not in, so he was under the British army, but it was the colonial British army. So he didn't command any British troops. He commanded the militias that were raised for the British army, if that makes sense. Because during the French Indian War, when this happened, that we were all still, you know, British citizens. At that point, everyone was super proud to be a British citizen. People at that time wanted to be citizens of Great Britain because they were a powerhouse. And then also during that time, he so one of the other some people talk about this and some people don't have the full story is that he was there's some people that say that he was a failure during the French Indian War. Now me me and there's definitely an argument for that, but me personally I think that that's unfair because what they're the really the event that they're trying to highlight is that he raised a fort called the Fort Necessity. He picked an awful spot for it. It was pretty much in a lowland, completely surrounded by. He was very vulnerable, completely surrounded by woods and, and hills and stuff, but he was pretty much in the middle of a field, which anyone that knows anything about getting military cover and concealment, that's that's not where you want to be. Um, he had to sign a surrender. Also, while he signed the surrender, the French, being that they wrote it in, in French, they snuck in a couple things where Washington had to take credit for shooting some not military troops that were just like kind of couriers earlier on in the war and pretty much sneaked in there by signing this, I'm taking responsibility for these other bad things that happened before. So that was used to disgrace him, you know, later on of he signed this. Wait, he, he thought he was just signing his surrender, which was very common at the time of, hey, you're kicking our butt right now. I'm going to live to fight another day. You know, it wasn't surrendering the whole war, just saying like, yes, just please let me leave with my guys. You know what I mean? So right. he, that's what he thought he was, he was signing, but his translator was not a very good translator and – he pretty much signed for a lot more than that. But then throughout the war, he worked his way back up. You know, he left kind of at one point he left the British army because he could never be being that he was a colonial and not British born. He could never hold a position in the British army. If that makes sense, he could command colonial troops of the British army, but he could never have British troops under his command. So 
he worked his way up and ended up being like an aide to camp. And then during another battle that the British got overtaken by French and their Indian allies, he was the hero of that battle. He led kind of a fighting retreat, if you will, out of the danger zone and was credited with saving a lot of the troops. And then he ended up being a very successful aide to camp. So it's like that one bad judgment call at Fort Necessity kind of plagued him. And that really, so I, that's where a lot of people talk about, and I hit on this earlier, um, to where up until the Declaration of Independence was signed, these armed engagements, like I said, there was a year of fighting up to that point, like the Siege of Boston happened, the Battle of Bunker Hill, the shot heard around the world. The end game there was not to separate from Britain at that time. The end game was to stop treating us unfairly and take us seriously. But they were pretty much just trying to act out and like King George equated them to children. You know what I mean? Like Right. Just, Spoiled were... children throwing a temper tantrum. Exactly. So they weren't trying at that point, no one was talking about independence. It was just we need to fight back. The one thing that what I think, and this is totally speculation, this is just me reading a bunch of Washington books. I think that was different for George Washington. And I, the reason being is, like you said earlier, and to the original point of, he really wanted to elevate his status. One of the best ways to do that, even in today's world, is military success. You could be the poorest kid from Podunk, nowhere. And if you enlist in the military, get, a, get an education, become an officer, you could have a very successful monetarily and personal career. I mean, and there was no different back then. So but he really felt slighted that he was never allowed to be an actual British officer, that all he was ever going to be was a colonial officer. So part of me thinks that he, he has some stake and he had a good reason to want to be independent because now he just became the overall commander of, uh, of a military and of a country's military. So he got what he wanted in that sense. And then he also, you know, wrote letters to Martha Washington saying when, the first Congress was raised and they were talking about raising the continental army about how I pretty much to the effect of, I don't want to do this, but who else is going to do this? Right. But yeah. He, he did wear his old u military uniform too. You know what I mean? So you have to take right. that with a grain of salt of, Oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't really want this job. I just, but I just wore the uniform for the job. anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it was part of his tactics of, of, you know, because if he came out acting like he wanted it so badly, I think it would have played his hand and it could have affected the rest of, you know, Congress voting him in. I think kind of like, uh, you know, all right, guys, since no one else really wants to do it or you think I'm the best for the job, I guess I'll do it. Right. Yeah. It's 100 percent. And that's one of the big things that a lot of the political scientists and historians talk about is that at that time, if you acted like you wanted to be in politics, everyone just thought you wanted to be a mower. Right? You, you know what, what I mean? And you were power hungry. But um. But yeah, it's, and you know, and that goes to all the, like, we learn about Washington and we learn about Jefferson and we learn about Adams and all that. And there's, there's so much more to these guys than just being the face on money. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. these were real dudes. Like, like Thomas Jefferson had illegitimate mixed race children, which at the time was like unheard of. Like that was, that was, well, it wasn't unheard of, but no one admitted to it. You know what I mean? Like at the time, it was, was kind of kept really hush hush, right? Yeah. Because he was, was, he had slaves and he was sleeping with. Uh, yep, and majority, then, a lot of them, right? And yeah, exactly. Well, there was there was one in particular. Um, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but when they always there was, they believe there's other illegitimate children too. But there was one that like he admitted to, like this is pretty much my, excuse me, my second family. You know what I mean? Um, 
But uh, he also, so Thomas Jefferson, after he wrote the Declaration, he was kind of upset about how many revisions there were to it, but he conceded because they really, he was the first one, like I said before, that had that mindset of we can self-govern and we can, we do have a right to do this. He published article or uh, pamphlets and articles about that were like anti King George, which you did not do that. Like you did not do that at the time. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? So he, but what's crazy is that in the, but on the same side, when the British came through Virginia, he abandoned his house and made his slaves stay there to kind of keep a line so he could get away. And he was beat up for that pretty bad politically because it's like he abandoned his state and his homestead, leaving people to fight for him. When Now, now let's be real. If, if he would have gotten killed at that time or captured, that would have been awful. You know what I mean for us? Because he was such a, a big political leader at the time. But it still was like he, he ran from a fight. You know what I mean? So that was yeah. another big hit on him politically. Um, but the other thing, too, is we talk about, you know, Independence Day and a lot of people think that, OK, we were and I, and I had in this earlier, too, that we were a nation right then. But really, like I said, it was we went through a lot of process of elimination with the Articles of Confederation and then eventually, you know, the Bill of Rights and all that stuff. So during that time, that was the first even though George Washington was very anti-political party, that's when we start seeing really the first political parties, which that was the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. So what that means is the Federalists were the big government guys. They wanted a national bank. They wanted to expand the country. They wanted us, you know, a standing army. The Anti-Federalists believed that, yes, we're all finally one nation. We're not individual colonies anymore, but we still can't have a standing army. We shouldn't have a bigger country and we shouldn't expand. Now, what's ironic is, as most people know, is that Thomas Jefferson was the president that got that signed for the Louisiana Purchase. And when he was attacked for that, being like, dude, you just, you just went against everything you've campaigned on. It, it, you know, his answer was just that he truly felt that that was what was better for the nation and that he had to put his own viewpoints aside in order to do this. And then also what's funny is at that time, because the Bill of Rights was so new and the Constitution was so new, no one said the president could do that, but no one's or yeah, no one said that he couldn't do that, but no one really told him he could do that either. He just kind of did it. And then afterwards, they're like, "Can a, is a president even allowed to do that? Like, is that like yeah, what, what do we do in this we situation? Just, right? What, yeah, yeah is that we just our country just like tripled in size overnight? Like, what's happening right now? <laughs> um, but you know, and also what's what's also really cool, and that's where I talk about. I'm, I'm not a religious guy, but it's almost like a divine providence thing. Is that both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died 50 years to the day from the sign of the Declaration of Independence. Both of them died July 4th, uh, 1826. Wow. So that is like, if that, like, that gives me like almost chills. When I remember when I first read that, I'm like, that's amazing. I, I don't know, I, I don't know about John Adams, what his final days were. I just haven't looked into what his final days were like, but uh, Thomas Jefferson, he was, he was holding out for that. He knew that his days were numbered. He was in and out of consciousness the last couple of days. He was really struggling and having a hard time. And then they said that he would, when he would come back to in the days leading up, he would ask what day it was. And then finally in the morning of July 4th, they said, it's July 4th, like you made it. And then he passed shortly after. So that was, That's it was awesome. pretty obvious that he's like, he was holding on. You know what I mean? Like he really wanted to see that. Um, now, one of the big founding, he's credited as a founding father, but not, not as much as he should be. And there's a lot of people, if you haven't studied history, might not have even heard of him, was Thomas Paine. And that was... He, that's did a he write the that, manifesto? Or was that him? 
No. So no. what he wrote was uh, okay. Common Sense. Oh, right. That's right. Yep. That's right. Yep. So he wrote he wrote some other pamphlets too, but he wrote Common Sense, and he also uh, he wrote Common Sense. That was the first one, and then he wrote The American Crisis in the later years of the revolution. But so Thomas Sense, or I'm sorry, uh, Thomas Paine was an interesting dude because he was England born. And then he wrote pamphlets and books about, there was an English revolution in the early 1600s. And that's why a lot of people started coming to America. So obviously because of, we all, we always hear about religious freedom and all that kind of stuff. But, and that's what kills me too, not to get too far into the weeds, but I think this is relevant to today's climate is I, I guess politically, I consider myself a constitutionalist. And I guess I think that's because of my love of history. But I look at the way that I see it is that we all, the original founders of the country came here on religious freedom. And that's what kills me is these, a lot of people today are, you know, they're diehard patriots. Then they bash other people's religion. And I'm like, well, how are you a patriot if, you, if you're bashing it? Like, whether I agree with it or not, they have a right to have their religion. This whole country is yes. based on, if you want to believe in the flying spaghetti monster, you get to believe in the flying spaghetti monster. Right, like, right. See, I, I'm with you there on the Constitution, because to me, it's an amazing document. Now, especially in the early days, did we follow it the way we should? We had to improve and actually start following that. And Exactly. You, you know, but, but I, I always think, you know show me a better document created or create one that is better than that. I, to me, I think it's an awesome blueprint for how to manage and, and have a society live together. And, you know, I'm a big believer. You read through it and all the things that still stand today. It's just amazing how it's lasted. I mean, how many years now? I mean, oh, it's, I, I'm terrible at math. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, since, you know, since 1789. Right. <laughs> right. right. So yeah, do the yeah. math. I mean, a couple hundred yeah. years at least. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that, well, that's so my whole my whole point about that was that Thomas Paine was really the first one to outward or to get any popularity with outwardly expressing those kind of ideas. He expressed kind of why the English Revolution was a good thing, and then he moved to America. Now he wrote Common Sense, and in Common Sense, he pretty much said that people. That was when you first start hearing the, you know, the government should be working for the people, not the other way around. That people have a right to govern themselves. And anybody in a political governing position should consider that an honor or not. They should be there every day that they're in office or they're doing their job. They should be thinking, I'm doing this for the betterment of my constituents, not what can my constituents do for me? And that was like radical thinking at the time. That was like way out in left field for the time. And then one of the big things, one of the quotes that I actually wrote down here to make sure that I got it right, that this, this quote kind of gives me goosebumps. This is out of common sense. Um, and George Washington, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he read this quote to his troops when they were getting ready to cross the Delaware. And as we all know, the crossing the Delaware was one of the big turning points in the war where that was something that absolutely no one thought could be done. And really even looking back on it, it's amazing that it, it was done. But um, the quote that really sticks out to me that George Washington read to his troops was, uh, these are the times that try men's souls, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot and this crisis will shrink from the service of their country. Now, he wrote that before it even looked like we were going to win. And he wrote that already talking about the Continental Army, about how this this is going to be hard. Like, yes, if we don't succeed, the people that signed this Declaration of Independence are probably going to be hunt for treason, along with their families and have their stuff burnt. But if, we don't, if we're not willing to risk that, then not, it's never going to happen. We're not going to get it anyway. And... And that's what 
speaks to me is that he, you know, he was an aide de camp at one point. Thomas Paine was. He in the American Crisis, he wrote about how pretty much Congress needed to start giving more funding, and about how important it was that, you know, that they got this funding. About all the stuff that we need to do if we're going to win the war. And he was really the one kind of almost like a PR rep at the time, you know, like rallying the troops of this is what we need. This is what we need. But his ideas that were in common sense were it, like literally Thomas Jefferson, along with the ideas he already had, but he, he, he spoke with he, um, what I want to say, he wrote back and forth or, you know, he talked to Thomas Paine and stuff like that. Like he corresponded with Thomas Paine. Um, Thomas Paine was really the guy that put a lot of these ideas in people's heads and a lot of where we got the declaration of independence from. And that idea that, we can govern ourselves. This experiment will work. That we have a right to be able to decide our own fate. Those are the ideas, really, of Thomas Paine. Or he was the first one to put them on paper. And I think it's a shame that he's not taught more. You know, one of my goals is I hope to teach history one day. And I'm not going to miss him in my history class. You know, I think it's a shame that right. He's he going to be, he's gonna be featured. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Now, what do you what do you think the founding fathers would have thought about the you know the lifetime politician? today which uh, i to me is a problem yeah obviously. no 100% without getting too political and any in, right right uh, exactly in, yeah in the any um and i'll just put this disclaimer out that any political opinions i put out are in no way representation of the us army or anything like that so i this is just Ab- me absolutely. joe coburn with with yep. my opinion um and that is i they were outwardly against it i mean i wrote one of my papers in college for political science i wrote about pretty much exactly that that the about how we need term limits in Congress and pretty much the whole paper was geared towards the term limits for Congress. And one of the big parts was about how George Washington in particular, but almost all politicians were 100% against the career politicians. So that's the other thing too, is that at the time, the, there was no term limits on presidents. George Washington, they, they, there's people that speculate, he could have been elected for the rest of his life. He could have been elected every four years for the rest of his life. And he that was one of the parts of his genius was that after two terms, he voluntarily did not run for re-election. No one told him he couldn't run anymore. But that was already his mindset of, no, that's not what it's supposed to be. It's time for somebody else with new ideas to take the reins so we can grow. You know, and then, That's amazing. Yeah, the foresight there. Exactly. And, there's, and one of the other big hits was, you know, like there's people that speculate that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and all, they, you know, they, they thought about running for a third term, but then they were always going to be compared to Washington. Oh, so you're better than George Washington? Like, so right, George the, Washington, the measuring stick, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, so George Washington doesn't feel that he should be able to serve two terms, but you, you think you're better than him. You can run for a third term. You know what <laughs> right, I mean? Right. So, um, but, and that was the same, you know, throughout as there's multiple writings, there's multiple debates that were recorded where it was almost unanimously against career politicians at the time. And, and, th- so. and that's, and that's amazing how, you know, how often that is still brought up today with that, the, que- the whole question of it. So, yeah, I just thought what you, I want to see what you thought about the founding father's uh, opinion on that. Now l- let's talk about, uh, because you mentioned where the continental army, I mean, everyone that was involved, like, Hey guys, we better win or we're going to get hung. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, so now let's talk about when Congress was running out of funding or the funding wasn't there. And these soldiers are learning through letters to, from their wives that their farms are falling apart. They have no money and they're still asked to stay in this fight. Um, do you want to elaborate on that at all? I mean, I know that was something that people don't really always think about. Absolutely. And that's another 
um, big thing. So George Washington was definitely a disciplinarian. And desertion was a huge deal, especially at the sieges, um, the siege of Boston, the siege of New York, a lot of, in Valley Forge, which, I mean, there's entire books wrote about just the winter at Valley Forge, where they were in just the absolute worst conditions, where there were soldiers without even shoes. They would wrap their feet in, in pine tar and, like, rags just to get some kind of covering on their feet. And guys were dying of sickness and dysentery. So obviously desertion was a thing. And at the time, think about, they, they didn't have, I mean, they had like log books and stuff, but really it wasn't a whole lot just stopping you from kind of picking up your gun and walking out into the woods. And so, but George Washington actually would make a point to, um, he hunted deserters. He publicly executed deserters. That was his MO. He did it multiple times. Now, one of the other things that he would do was there was an instance at Valley Forge where there was a group of deserters. He hung the group leader, but or I'm sorry, he had the group leader executed by firing squad, but he had it done at the hands of the individuals that deserted with him. Wow. And pretty much That's made powerful. them swear that they, they were loyal to that point. You know what I mean? That they weren't going to desert anymore. And people think, you know, they equate that to part. I mean, people use the word genius with George Washington all the time, and rightly so. But think about the mental effect of that. You know, and he did he did a lot of things like that that, you know, it was brutal. Like, there's no other way. He, I mean, you look at that today, the stuff that soldiers got executed for back in, you know, the Revolutionary War time frame for going AWOL and UA and stuff like that. Like, today, yeah. you, you might get restriction to the barracks for 30 days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's... No, no libo on the weekend, right? Yeah, it's it, people are hunt for that like two, over two hundred years ago. Yeah, that's oh. that's a phenomenal that's a phenomenal point. And when you think of Washington too, uh, isn't it one of those things where he's not really known as a uh, tactician per se, right? Like Napoleon, or mm -hmm. but I, I think his strength was just being able to keep the fibers together and being able to take all of the. Uh, all the shots coming his way through the, you know, even Congress and the public yep. and other generals trying to come in and maybe take over those positions. Oh, that I mean, was a, that was a huge, huge, huge part of it. So the one thing that he's credited with a lot is that he listened to lower like individuals than himself. Like he didn't care if it came from a private, if someone, if he just thought a good idea is a good idea, which is something that a lot, especially never happened in the British military but a lot of individuals lack in leadership is they don't want to listen to people of a lower rank than them. Henry Knox, for example, was a colonel for most of the war, and that was one of Washington's right-hand guys as far as advice and, you know, any, especially anything to do with artillery. That's what Henry Knox was really known for was, was artillery. But the um, that was like his right-hand dude, you know, throughout the whole thing. And But he competed, and he did it very gracefully, with a lot of the other generals like general lee was a was a big one that came after his job now he left in disgrace because he got there's a lot of different things surrounding it but he um pretty much got caught they the british picked him up coming out of a brothel um <laughs> and supposedly and it's speculation whether or not he was drunk or not but uh you know so he got that kind of eliminated it, honestly there's people that also say that was one of the best things that happened to, to the Continental Army was because, you know, that general was really trying to, to go for Washington's job. And then he had other issues, too, like the famous Benedict Arnold. Um, you know, that was one of Washington's best generals. And on the battlefield, to, to be fair to Benedict Arnold, on the battlefield, he was, like, unstoppable. 
He was a hero at Quebec. He was a hero at, at Saratoga. And pretty much the only reason he turned, which I find this ironic because George Washington's big issue with the British Army was that they never let him progress past a certain point just because of the status he was born into. But I did Arnold had the same issue. Is he's like, I've done all these amazing things for you. I've listened to you the whole time. I've had all the success. Why am I not getting promoted past Brigadier General? And why are these other guys that are like politician type generals getting promoted over me? And whether obviously no one's going to, I'm not going to sit here and say what he did was right, but that's really what drove him back to the British was that he felt like he earned more than what he was given at the time. And a lot of people don't discuss that, right? They just kind of say, hey, turncoat, right? Or they call, is that that the right term for in that, in that situation? A hundred percent. He is probably the most famous turncoat. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Cause yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't, I'm, I don't want to say that I'm a, Benedict Arnold advocate, but I I do like to remind people of like, dude, he the first part of the war, he was literally a war hero. Like he did. And to be fair, there were some people that used political cards to get promoted over top of him, and that was really his big complaint. So it's all I don't know if you want to call it empathy or, or whatever, but it's I just kinda feel I wish that people would paint the whole picture of that man, you know, not just the turncoat and you for, know, that, for accuracy. Right. Yeah, exactly. And just context. Exactly. It's, it's important and it's going deeper. Yeah, I yep. think that's part of going deeper on all this stuff. And that's why I'm really glad to have you on here because I have questions on this stuff, too, because I mean, I, I've read quite a bit like on Washington. I'm big on presidents and stuff. But, I, but you know, Fourth of July, yep. usually I'll spend six, seven hours watching some of the specials on History Channel. And to be able <laughs> to have you here to to go further with some of these things and to confirm some of the, the things that I've learned. And I think a lot of people listening will, will be in that same boat. Uh, I I hope so. I, I hope that I, I – I don't think it's – it'd be hard to ever do it justice. One of the big things that I talk about is, um, like, at the time, like I said, the, the British Army and Great Britain in general was the most powerful country on the planet. And for us to beat them, one, was extremely, extremely unlikely. And we also – as much as I am the most – American patriot person on the planet. We wouldn't have been able to do it without the help from the French, which we got by the battle. So that's just, I was just going to ask you when the French uh, entered the conversation. So the, uh, that's the other reason too, why Benedict Arnold was such a big deal was he helped win the battle of Saratoga. Well, that was the battle that the French decided after, okay, we're going to help these guys. So the French, no, no one wants to bet on a losing horse. So up to that point, it was super back and forth. The French wanted to get involved just because they had a natural hatred towards the British. But you're not going to get involved if you don't think that the America's going to win. Or at the time, they weren't even America. You don't think that you know the colonies are going to win. So after the Battle of Saratoga, that's when they were really like, okay, I, I think that you know these guys have a shot. So that's when they decided to help us out and back us. So, um, And we... I, I don't believe we would have been, and most people don't believe we would have been able to do it without the French. But, and to, I think I even, I went down a rabbit hole and got off your earlier point, but like, and when we go back to look at Washington, like you were right. I just, what made me think about that was that the French taught a lot of tactics that um, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Baron von Schroep. I, I think Schroep or something like that was his name. I'm very bad at pronouncing um, some of those names, but he was the one that taught kind of drill and ceremony that even like, to this day that we still use. And up to that point, you're right, there wasn't a lot of tactics or kind of discipline in the conversation, but what Washington was very, very good at was he was a great motivator. He stood at like six foot two, I believe. He was a huge- that's Which is huge, huge like, especially for, for the, the day. Yeah. Yeah, and he was a very good athlete. Whenever they had like athletic competitions, he was a very, very good athlete. 
He was a very good dancer. Women fawned after him. So other men listened to him. You know, that's just the kind of guy that when it went, and he wasn't a, they, they talk about people that first hand accounts talk about how he wasn't like a, like really a yeller. He wasn't a loud boisterous dude. He was just one of those people that when he talked, the room went silent and people listened to him. And I think that that helped through like, like I said, he, he read Thomas Paine's quote to rally the troops for crossing the Delaware, which that is, there's whole books wrote just about that one night. And that painting is um, so amazing. Isn't it? That, oh, that yeah. painting? It, if you don't get, if it wasn't for worried about my wife leaving me, that would probably be across my chest. If I find <laughs> to do it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, you know, this, the whole, we could have a whole discussion about, we should do a Christmas. I'm not telling you how to run your podcast, but we should no, do a man. Christmas special on crossing the Delaware. <laughs> oh, li- listen, th- listen, man, this ain't going to be your only trip on this podcast. I'm already I, thinking five, six steps ahead. Like every, I, I hope not. And I, and I have other, so I, if someone asked me my area of expertise, like I wrote my, actually, I wrote my college thesis paper on the role that, and even before this, I wrote my college thesis on the role that religion had. Um, with the interaction with the natives pretty much in the early Plymouth and Jamestown colonies. Obviously, it was more um, scholarly wrote out than that, but just to summarize it. So um, I would say this is my area of expertise is the American Revolution in that time frame. However, like, for instance, we're, we're going to Gettysburg for my birthday next month. I, I'm, I am a fan, if you want to call it that, of all eras of American history. So um, I would love to come on and hopefully uh, – I don't have, you don't have an army of fat checkers that find some small inaccuracy. You know what I mean? Hopefully you, you feel like you're getting a good product here with me and I would love to come back on it. Oh, it, it'll be great too, to have people discuss, you know, on YouTube, there's things for the, the comments that we can check yeah. out and, and that's going to be great. So and, that's what's, yeah, that's what's scary about discussing history. I remember when I actually submitted that thesis paper to try to get it published because I, I, at my professor's kind of um, advice, but what's so scary about discussing history is that there's always facts on both sides. Like I, if you wanted right. to, even though every, like most of the stuff that I say to, to my best knowledge is true. And that's what's so kind of nerve wracking about this kind of discussing these kind of things is you, you could totally go and try to find evidence that everything I just told you is wrong. You know what I mean? Like, right. It, where, it, where, how do we track it down? Where are those, it, those books exactly. and where do they lie? So, you know, it, it's, and, and that's why like a good historian is not somebody that has all this stuff memorized. I took a bunch, I, I have a bunch of notes in front of me. It's, a good historian, somebody that can knows where to get good research from. You yeah, know, and that's, I, I, and that's I really where it comes from. Um, but yeah, I uh, I forgot where I was even going with that. But no, but oh, the cross of the Delaware. Yeah. So they uh, and his, the way he motivated troops for that. So I mean, they were it was an abnormally like cold, snowy, icy, ice chuck filled cross across the Delaware River to go attack the Hessians. At that point, there wasn't um, a British occupation over there. It was the Hessians who were mercenaries hired by the British. And to get over there, I mean, there was, there was two guys. The only Actually, the only two American casualties of that engagement was they froze to death. It wasn't even uh, battlefield losses for us. It was they, they froze to death. And then Washington was supposed to cross the Delaware on the north side, like nine, I think it was nine miles north, and then come down into this into the city of Trenton. And then Henry Knox and his artillery were supposed to kind of come up from the south. They were supposed to kind of like surround them. Well, the south element never crossed. But at that time, how, how do you know? Because there's no radios. There's no, Yeah, you're not, your comm isn't up, right, at that point? Yeah, exactly. There's no comm up. I mean, we complained about it in Afghanistan not having comms. At that point, that wasn't even an option. You're right. Yeah, yeah, back <laughs> but, then. Uh, he uh, he came down from the north, and then they, they split his force, which is another thing that 
he Washington split his force a lot, and you're not supposed to do that. Um, he split his force, surrounded the city, and then took the city without even his whole southern element, just because he caught him by surprise. Now, there's also speculation that the Hessians were all drunk. However, there's not a ton of like concrete evidence to say they were actually drunk, but that's obviously, um, you know, a big thing that they always talk about was they caught him on you know at Christmas and all this other stuff. But yeah, that was how they ended 1776, and now that was a big turning point because that told Congress at that point of that's that that kept the army back together and Washington fell. And the reason why that was so important for motivational purposes was he, he needed a victory to keep that army together. They were losing consistently. They were broke. They weren't getting paid the way they were supposed to. He needed that. He needed a decisive victory to make. No one wants to be on a losing team. You know what I mean? He needed to make, and that's why he read the sunshine Patriot quote to them beforehand. He needed them to feel like, this is possible. Like we can actually do this. Need, so needed a win. That, needed that one win to really spark everything else. He needed that W, you know, and uh, that really. So that's why I people play. I think it's just because I'm so into this that I feel like a lot of this stuff is downplayed. Um, you know, and everyone talks about like, yeah, this is the American experiment. Like the you know the Declaration of Independence. Like that was so awesome and all this other stuff. And I just always try to come like, you don't even understand how awesome this is. <laughs> I know. Let talk, yeah. Let me talk about how unlikely no it was that this worked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh no doubt. there's a lot of and, and everything that i'm talking about is is stuff that you know is is easily found one of the if i can recommend a book um anyone that is interested at all in how this happened if they can read uh david mcculliffe is his name 17 the book 1776 it is i've read it like four times and i've listened to it on audio on audible another probably half dozen times it's just an amazing book um, I tried to get my wife to listen to it. She thought it was dry. So maybe you have to be a history nerd to like it, but I, I love it. Um, but yeah, that's, there's a lot of just, if, you, if this is something that your listeners are into, there's so many books I can suggest that I've read just multiple, multiple times that add just so many different, um, you know, what we might be able to do is actually take that list down and, uh, have our producer Don, uh, put it up on the, on the screen, on the YouTube screen and just have a link to it somewhere, maybe with all the names. I think people yeah. would really dig something like that to be able to go find those books and learn more. Yeah, that would be, that'd be awesome. Uh, so now what about, uh, okay, maybe finishing with the points of the, the final battles of the war or what put us over the edge. And then we can kind of talk about independence day as the holiday. And yeah. So independence like day, so independence day as a holiday is that was actually, a, it was always celebrated. Um, but it was adopted as an actual national holiday, not till 1941. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, but it's, it's pretty much, like I said, those, excuse me, John Adams and Jefferson thought enough of the day that they, it was already held enough for them that they kept on living it into the 50th anniversary. So it was already a celebrated tremendous event, but it wasn't like a national holiday until 1941, if that makes sense. Um, But yeah, that's, so that's what it, you know, that's when, before that, they obviously, fireworks weren't as good as they are now. You know, fireworks. Are, yeah, yeah. what was the, <laughs> do you know what the old fireworks were? Like, back in the uh, the early days, the primitive fireworks, I'm not even sure what they consisted of. Candle up in the I air? Know. Yeah, I, I don't, <laughs> I know, flare? so I mean, fireworks have been around for long, long time, hundreds of years. I know that the Chinese came up with them, but uh, I, I don't know. That is one area that I'm lacking, I guess. Now I'm going to have to look at how <laughs> fireworks, fireworks expert. Progress. You need a fireworks yeah. expert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know about kind of the whole history behind fireworks, but uh, that's after 1941 was kind of really what 
you know, of Independence Day as we know it today. It's such a staple too in our, our you know, as far as our American holidays go. And what a great oh, yeah. time. You have a beautiful, sunny Fourth of July afternoon. And I, I'm going to do, in fact, there's other segments on this episode where I'm going to do, uh, ironically, the owner, the old owner of the Yankees, George Steinbrenner, was born on the 4th of July. And the old Raider owner, Al Davis, both of them passed, obviously, mm-hmm. is uh, also born on the 4th of July. And uh, Lou Gehrig Day was on the 4th of July. So many sporting events are tied into that holiday as well that it I'm is- going to explore a little bit. Absolutely. It is definitely, without a doubt, if you ask anyone that knows me at all, it is my favorite holiday by far. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't all out for Independence it Day. It's, it's I don't big. all out. Yeah, it is. That is definitely I. That is definitely my favorite holiday. I think, you know, it's this, you know, to bring it full circle. So when I went in the military, I didn't have, I had two grandfathers in World War II. But other than that, and both of both of them were actually one of them, I should say, was still alive when I was a kid. My one great grandfather was in the Army Air Corps, and he died when I was like ten. But I just used to sit on his lap. You know, people tell about. I think that's where my love of history came in. Of the other kids were playing, and all I wanted to hear was Grandpa's war stories, like from yeah. five, six, seven year old, way before I should have any interest in that. And uh, I think that's really what got me. Nobody in between him and me were ever in the military. In my family. But I was raised super patriotic. Like my dad and my grandfather were, you love your country and just were just all up patriots. And I think that's really what, that's what I think drove me to join the military, to be honest with you, is I was all about American history. I want to be a part of history. And I just thought like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, I love this country. So if, if I, I, I need to do something to defend it, you know, and then, you know. and you put Yeah, put your stamp on it, right? Put your yeah, individual exa- stamp. Exactly. And I when I'm talking to, you know, sometimes parents and I, I was doing a, I got kind of bum rushed by a, a reporter at some event I was at and they asked what was like the single event that made me want to join the military. And without even hesitating, I said, not, not 11. Like I watched not 11 happen, you know, and I was only like 10 years old at the time I watched nine 11 happen. And I was like, I, I gotta do, like, I, I gotta do something, you know, even at 10 years old, I was like, I felt helpless of like, I, I, I can't, I can't let this just happen. Like, I, I have to in, in eight, in eight years, I'm going to be on this. Yeah. Right. Cause you t- literally, yeah. it, it literally did that. <laughs> like literally I, my, my mom drove me. This is a true story. My mom drove me to a recruiter's office on my 17th birthday because wow. you can't talk to a recruiter until you're 17. So I, my mom drove me, I turned 18 in boot camp. Um, for the Marine Corps. And I was, I was 19, I believe I would have been when I was in Afghanistan, but or, uh, no, I was 20 in Afghanistan. So I turned 21, like two days after I got home. But, um, but yeah, and that's really just that patriotism and those huge, I think that's why like the 4th of July celebrations are so important. I'm super bummed because me and my wife just moved, um, or my wife and I, I guess would be the right way to say that. Uh, we just <laughs> moved to the, to Kenesha's Lake and we're right on the lake and, we specifically, I wanted this place because the fireworks were pretty much in my backyard and they canceled them this year. And I think oh. I, I wanted, to cry. I wanted to cry. I really oh, did. I was, so, I was so upset about it. I'm like, this is like the whole reason I wanted this place. <laughs> I know. Right. I, I bought the place because of the fireworks. Damn it. I know. And then uh, I keep, I brutal. made a Facebook joke about it this morning that everyone keeps talking about, like they're complaining. So I just a bunch of people in like urban areas doing fireworks. And I'm like, Man, my neighbors are lame because I would love for just some random fireworks to go off. Yeah, right you, you know, in L.A. they used to have that, man. In L.A., I could just go out on my front porch and it'd be right in the street. Everyone would be letting shit off. It was I know. It was pretty inspiring, actually. And, <laughs> you know, going back to uh, relatives that were in the war, my grandfather was in World War II 
uh, Battle of the Bulge and Fourth of July. My grandma had the nicest backyard, right? Flowers and mm-hmm. everything were in place. Fourth of July, he tore that place up with his M80s and shit. That oh, yeah. the grass and the flower beds were hammered. She would just yell, "John, damn it, my garden!" <laughs> Don't worry, Kay. It's a Fourth of July. Here we go. Yeah, uh, you, you go all out. You go all out on the Fourth of July. At least we do. And I had plans to throw just like a massive party this year to have a nice backyard, like. I wanted Hot to really dogs, do it. dogs, burgers, oh, beer. Yeah. I mean, come on. The whole nine. I was so, and I did the same. I do the same. Now that I have like a nice place to the nice yard for holidays, I tell everybody else, like, you're coming to me because I'm cracking my first Budweiser at nine in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> there is no 12 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. You want, this is a holiday. I'm waking, I'm not even doing coffee this morning. I'm going right to Budweiser. Dude, roll out of bed and just do, you know, do a <laughs> do low crawl to your fridge, grab a beer. Yes. If you, Stone Cold Steve Austin style, man. That's yeah. how we do it over here. <laughs> if you must take a shower, bring that beer with you to the yeah. shower. Oh, yeah. I mean, what's better after mowing the lawn than a shower beer? <laughs> it all sounds great to me. And I hope people, you know, let's talk about this year. I hope people make the best of uh, of the holiday today. You know, we're in this on yeah. the 4th of July. So I hope we find a way to uh, keep our traditions going. And, and the people that truly appreciate these holidays. I know I always love our traditional holidays. I mean, it makes me so excited to be an American, how fortunate we are. Um, you know, we, we did our best to defend it and, uh, you know, it's just such an honor to be involved in it and to even, you know, do this podcast. I've had a great time today doing this. Me too. I've had, I've had a ton of fun. I, I, I really hope that I get a, I get a call back. I'll be honest. Oh yeah, with you. yeah, of course. I'm probably man. overplaying my hand there, but I'm. I don't want to. You're, you're going to be back, <laughs> man. I, I promise you that. We're, we have a bunch of cool things to do. We still got to touch on the Civil War. We got you know a bunch of other yeah. things to explore. I, uh, I'll see if I can. Um, like I said, we're we're planning a trip to Daddy's. That's what I wanted to do for my my birthday is the end of July, July 29th, and I. Uh, my wife this year was like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to go. I've been to Gettysburg, but I'm like, I want to go back to Gettysburg. So nice. she's appeasing me because that's not really her thing. And she. Be a good uh, sport, to, huh? Yeah. She, oh, she's, she's, if I could, yeah. Other than trying to put in a plug for the National Guard, if I could put my, you know, put in a plug for how awesome my wife is. Oh, that's. She, go go but, ahead. Uh, go ahead and say your name if you'd like, yeah, bro. So You're... if, if uh, anyone knows my wife, Brooke Colburn, make sure you tell her about how awesome I said she was on a podcast. But they, uh, and Brooke, we, we appreciate you uh, letting us borrow your husband here for the yeah, day. Yeah, she's, she's right now, she's, she's really the one that's putting in the work because she has two kids and two pit bulls upstairs right now. She's keeping quiet so I can <laughs> talk to you. But she's they, doing a uh, great job. I haven't heard a peep. Yeah, like I said, I barricaded myself in the laundry room. But, <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, like I go to so many museums. Like every year, that's I keep trying to find new history museums to go to. And I'm the read to every plaque guy. You know, like I go in there and I could spend hours upon hours upon hours. And she's so good about just kind of appeasing me and letting me read all my plaques you know, and look at all the cool stuff. And this year, awesome. she not that she doesn't, like she's a very patriotic individual too, but uh, not that she's not like pro-history or anything like that, but she's just doesn't, I completely nerd out on it and she just kind of lets me go like a kid in a candy store. So, and she knows that that's what it's going to be when we get down to Gettysburg again, it's just, I'm going to be, going crazy and think that everything i see is the coolest i've ever seen in my life you know and see for, for guys like us man that put uh that use gun oil for cologne you know it's oh, just like exactly. the, <laughs> you know the tackleberries within us all for the yeah, police academy yeah. people remember that movie yeah, yeah absolutely and i um and she's yeah she's so good about just like letting it happen <laughs> just being like that she that's probably so knows cool, too honey. she's like why fight it go with it yeah absolutely she um even through school i 
I'm not the best when it comes to like the you know the grammar and the spelling and stuff. So she proofread I think every one of my college papers. So nice, good team, been, right? She's, yeah, she's awesome. So you know, Joe, why don't you go ahead and uh, I mean, if you want to give anyone your contact information to talk to you about the National Guard or whatever else that you might be working on, or go absolutely. ahead and feel free to let the people know how to contact you. Yeah, so absolutely. So my con- I'll give you my my number for work for if you want to contact me to learn more about the National Guard is a five eight five. 905-9517. And also you can find me on Facebook, just Joseph Coburn. Um, my first name's spelt weird. So it's a uh, J O E S E P H. Um, I don't know why my parents did that, but they, uh, and, um, I'm also on, I'm on Instagram too, is team Coburn. Any of that stuff. I, you know, I share a lot of history stuff and stuff like that on Facebook. And, uh, I am obviously a national Guard recruiter, you guys have any questions about the guard and military in general you know i i can definitely point you in the right direction i've definitely i've even i as much as i don't like doing this and my boss hates it i have handed individuals off to other recruiters because i thought they were a better fit for another branch so um, that's amazing man that's that's how i that's how i operate so you know any questions feel free to call right now just uh what you guys a lot of people know about this either is i am I'm working on my second degree right now. So I'm, I'm going for my second bachelor's. I have yet to pay a dime for college. My little brother is also in the military. He got his bachelor's without paying a dime. So, I mean, these benefits are, I think a lot of people think it's like fine print. It's really not. Like I said, I'm, I'm going on my second degree right now and I haven't paid a cent for college. I don't have any student loans. I haven't paid for a book. I haven't paid for anything. And it's all by, it's all paid for by the military, you know, and we, we do have signing bonuses and stuff like that too. We have a $20,000 sign-on bonus, which I don't plug that a lot because I want people to join for other reasons than that. But if that's, if some people they're in that financial situation where they need that, then absolutely we're a good source for that. But yeah, I mean, and the other thing too, is people think if, if they come in and come into my office and talk to me that automatically I just, they just join the military. You know? Right. Like, they, they can't get out the door. It's going to be locked behind yeah, them. They've, exactly. they've already signed it away. Yeah. If every person that came off is joined the military, I would be done working by the end of October. Yeah. <laughs> like, our year starts October 1st. So in the first month I, I would be done already. But, um, and that's not the case. I have, I've had people that have came in and then after the meeting said, honestly, they weren't sure that they really wanted to join. They just knew nothing about it and wanted information. And I, I'm fine with that. I, there's no hard feelings there. It, so and it, I think that's good for the recruiting community to put that out there too. Cause I think to get more people in the door yes. to know that, Hey, just let me explore, you know, and, yep. and, and let me find out for myself here and learn more about it. And, yep. you know, and make, and, yeah. So and, and make no, no question about it. I am a recruiter. Obviously I want everyone I talk to to join the national guard. You know what I mean? That is my ab- job. absolutely but, right. And I don't, there's, there's some recruiters that try to like, hide that and I'm, I'm like no like my job is to recruit you in the national guard but i just don't want i i do try to kind of counteract that stigma you know what i mean like, yeah oh yeah and there's a way to do it and I absolutely think, yeah. like i i do some um like my local high school and some of the other high schools i come in and they'll do like uh for history classes just because that's like my my thing is i'll go in and talk about like the history of some of the local units like the history of you know, the National, the National Guard is the oldest branch in the country, period. It was born in 1936. Or 16. Oh, wow. 1636. <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> 1636. Yeah. And uh, um, and so we are, the you know, the oldest branch. There's so much history there. So I, I try to petition a lot to 
um, history teachers of, hey, let me come in and just talk to your kids. Yes, I am going to have a sheet where they can fill out if they want more information on the National Guard. But I just like going in and talking about it. You know, if I'm being totally honest, I, I just I just enjoy talking about it. That's why I was so excited to come in and talk to you on, on here. Oh, man, it, it's, it's been our pleasure, and, and we're definitely going to have you on again. So, uh, you know, we just want to thank you, Joe, for coming on and, and um, being a part of this and, and doing this for us and educating us on the Independence Day history. And we want everyone to enjoy the rest of the their 4th of July. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll look towards the Civil War and all the other battles and things we can discuss in the future. Absolutely. Happy Independence Day, everybody. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. We'll talk to you soon. Yep, thank you. And that was Staff Sergeant Joe Coburn with the New York Army National Guard. Thank you all for spending your 4th of July with us. Have fun, be safe, and celebrate America. We'll see you next week. 
American Warrior Festival podcast is brought to you by the Red Osier Landmark Restaurant, Oliver's Candies, Smokin' Eagle Barbecue and Brew, The Firing Pit, Orcon Industries, Ken Barrett Chevrolet Cadillac, TF Browns, One LLP, Batavia Legal Printing, Gun Track App, and Amerahome Healthcare.